is in, in yet in her in her ability to live um, in maybe a bit an extraordinary manner in this earth found that that didn't assuage the passion of her soul. And so she begins to, to walk about and to, to seek others who were praying and saying, there is something far more powerful and far more glorious than what I'm experiencing in selling purple cloth. This isn't hitting the soul mark for me. And so Paul came and met Lydia outside the gates as Lydia went one more day to seek the face of God and one more day to say, what I've been doing is not filling my soul. And so, holy God, would you show me yourself? And when Paul walked up, what extraordinary collision of the gospel. And Lydia said yes to Jesus, and she did what I think is uncommon for most of us, because in her immediate yes to Jesus, she immediately also understood the value and distinctive nature of biblical community. Because her first statement was not, praise the Lord, I've got this now, I'm good. It was, praise the Lord, will you come now and disciple our community and build this church that one day, several years down the road, you're going to be sitting in your third prison cell over, fourth counting the one in our city, and you're going to write us a letter most likely from Rome. So Paul, would you come and sit with us for a season? Because I value this idea of this context of what we need to sit in. We need to sit as a people around the scripture and allow the word of God to permeate our hearts. And so Paul, not only thank you for bringing me the gospel message, but can you allow me and help me to bring this to this, in this city? Can we have a reckoning in the city for the sake of the glory of God? That's the beginning point of this church. The next convert, a demon-possessed slave girl. She's like a runaway. She's got spirit gifts. She's very productive for her owners. She, if you read, this is all, by the way, in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. No, you know, I'm not having to connect history books here. This is in chapter 16 of Acts, and the slave girl is pestering um, Paul and Silas as they walk about. So they just kind of turn to her at one moment and say, out of her, she's set free. She's free from bondage. She's free from the slave of spiritual enslavement. She's free in Christ. It's a beautiful moment. She intrinsically and spiritually knew that, that who she was was made new. She was rescued, deeply wounded, set free. Owners, not so happy. So you begin to see uncommon joy in one of the first responses, first of Lydia and the value for community, of setting a free and enslaved girl, and then two guys who were fundamentally free because it says in Acts 16, the owners were ticked because this sweet little girl who they had enslaved was used for profit as Jesus so does through his people. They stepped in and set her free. She's now free. Their profits are gone. So scripture says they had them flogged and thrown into prison. And so rather than thinking that their imprisonment was an imprisonment on earth, they knew that they were in chains and bondage to Jesus. So the prison cell was another place to launch the church. So this is this powerful launching of this church. And I don't want you to miss as we read the letter over the next few moments and what Paul begins to write. There's uncommon joy because they're sitting in the midst of the prison cell having done justice in heavenly eyes. And if you go with the awesome song and yet they're left in the valley. So what do you do when you're left in the valley? You, you and I do what any follower of Jesus does. You just start to look at your chains and sing hymns. It is well. 
I mean, they're tearing it up. They could, they go on for a while about it as well with my soul right now. And all of them are, are, you know, just kind of listening in. All of those who are in prison, you know the rest of the story if you've been here for a few times since I've shared this story. At some moment, there is this once again, Holy Spirit, would you come invade this place? He does. And I love this statement. It says that all of the chains of the prisoners were dropped to the ground. There's something powerful that happens in our lives when we live for the fullness of Jesus Christ. It frees other people around us to see him for who he is. And perhaps the reason that there's not a grand reckoning is we're not living as people who are chained to Jesus and they're not thus freed to see him for who he is. That's a powerful thought for me. It's not in my notes. And so I'm just sitting and thinking, God, are we living in such abandonment for you that, that others around, not that, they're, that, that we can sing them into heaven, but their chains are dropped so they can see Jesus. In doing so, you know this well, the jailer almost took the, the sword and thrust it through him because to lose your prisoners is to lose your life. And so he was going to take his life. Paul said, we're all here. And he said, what, what do I need to do to be saved? Because I want what you have. Because it's pretty uncommon. Nobody stays. And not only did he lead him to Jesus, and thus the church is birthed out of Lydia, who's sitting outside the gates, and yet in Jesus, a slave girl, demon-possessed and now set free, but now a jailer and his whole family are baptized, and they kind of still leave Paul and Silas in jail to kind of continue to grow the church for a few more days. And then they pull them out and they deal with, why did you beat us? Because we're Roman citizens. And it's this extraordinary story of who makes up the church that we're about to study over the next 11 weeks. And what they held in common, this, this woman whose wealth did not satisfy, a slave girl with a deep past, a tough-nailed jailer, what they held in common is this, the uncommon joy that they found in Jesus. Could that hold us in common? I think that could hold us together. That was a yes from the church. That could hold us together as a church. This uncommon joy and maybe even a step further satisfaction that we have in Christ. In the first two verses, I think Paul writes just this complete satisfaction in Jesus. That Jesus is enough because he says, Paul and Timothy, we are servants. This is a Greek word named doulos. We are bond service. We are slaves to God in Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are set apart by God, that Greek word is hagios, those who are set apart for Christ, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I could sing it. So he's writing, and I think the first thing he's saying to this group is uncommon joy is found in just Christ-centered or gospel-centered identity. That this is who I am. This is what marks my life. I want you to know that Jesus is enough. That's what Paul's saying to this group. I want you to experience the same grace that I'm experiencing. I want you to experience the peace that surpasses understanding. Remember now, he wrote to them and led a portion of this church from a jail cell in Philippi. He is now writing to them three prison imprisonments later, most likely 
from a jail cell in Rome. I, I'm not exactly positive which jail cell he's writing from, but he's writing from imprisonment, most likely in Rome. And he is writing them saying, I want you to know this. I am enslaved to God in Christ. There is grace that is moving in my life. There is peace that is abounding in my life. I am so free in Jesus Christ. And right now the church is still growing. And I'm growing the church right here in Rome in the same manner that we grew the church in Philippi in the chains and bondage of the glory of the cross. Jesus is enough. There aren't always nice bows and happy endings on this earth. And that's what I would say as we make this proclamation that Jesus is enough, that I am a servant of Christ, that I am experiencing the grace of Christ, that I have the peace of Christ. There is this grace that I think Paul is teaching on. I, I, I went in our first month of marriage I went to the um, Emmaus Walk, and it was an extraordinary adventure for us. And Susan went two months before our wedding. I went one month after, and if you've never been, it's 17 messages on grace. And that's all I can tell you, because the rest of it, it's kind of secret. But it's a powerful encounter around the grace of Christ. And I think Paul, to some measure, is talking to this group, saying, there's a sustaining power of grace found in Jesus. When you reach this conclusion that Jesus is enough... He meets you where you are. His, his grace is timely, it is specific, and it is personal. This isn't a grace to you and hope you do well, peace to you and hope you do well. His sustaining grace is grace that is given, that it moves in your life, and it is deeply sustaining, powerfully personal. And it is enough for us. It's the grace that we receive when we're sitting in a hospital corridor and a doctor comes and sits down and gives us a word. It's the grace that we receive as we stand beside a grave. It's a grace we receive where there is no textbook and there is no formula for this grace. It's not like we could sit down and go, I want you to understand. I can sit in my, in my fourth imprisonment that I know of. I can sit in this and tell you there's grace. There is the presence and the power and the wonder of Christ. His grace sustains me. It's the grace that's distinguished from the first experience. As I mentioned in my prayer, to the second. It's very personal, very timely. To the 17th time that you need His grace, it meets you there. To the 257th time, it is the grace of Christ that meets us where we are. God gives you what you need so that you and I might experience uncommon joy. And what you need is Him. And what you and I need is to say, Jesus, the grace that we have, the grace and peace that will sustain us, the power of our lives is this, that we are chained to you. And this is what we need. Scripture just, God, you hold all things together. God, you hold me together. God, you did not leave me nor forsake me. God, your grace is sufficient for me in this moment. It's this reality that we come to the Lord and say, my identity in you is, is beautiful. If you want to personalize it to this situation, the grace is the grace that you need when you have no idea that where to go, but you know that people are hungry for Christ. It's the grace that is both given to Lydia and to Paul. Lydia to say, I love your seeking heart. Paul to say, I love the message of grace you will share with this seeking heart. You don't know where to go. You don't know the answer. Let me bring a collision of grace. This grace is for when you're chained in a prison cell and you're singing at the top of the lungs. You are awesome! I mean, we didn't even sing it in here at the top of our lungs. 
It is the grace that is sufficient in the midst of life's greatest trials so that we are singing this as we walk through life being sustained by God so that when life cripples us, all we know to sing is you are awesome. You are sustainer. You are protector. You are deliverer. You are freedom. We don't sing it now. We won't sing it in the future. You are awesome, God. And if that's not... Pause. It's the grace when we're sitting in the prison cell to sing of the goodness of God. It's the grace when we say, I am going to go one more day outside the gate and seek God's face. And then to wake up the next day, Lydia, and say, I'm going to go one more day. I don't know the answers. I know the hunger of my heart. And I'm going to keep waking up and I believe the grace of God will sustain me, and I believe that the grace of God will somehow speak to some guy who wants to go to Bethany or Missy and is going to get on a boat and come across a strait and sit with me. That grace is sufficient for you, and that grace holds you together. And that grace will neither leave you nor forsake you. And that, that grace meets you where you are. There's grace to write from another cell. Here's what there's not grace. There's not grace that promises you and I this will all work out in the end. This grace is what God gives what God gives to each of us when you and I have nothing left. This grace is for the hope of the moment, the hope of Christ today, the grace that Jesus is enough. I almost feel Psalm 73, 25 and 26 explains this grace through the heart of day. But what do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and He is my portion forever. If I could just begin here by saying, Jesus is enough. He can fulfill this church. His sustaining grace is enough for whatever is in your life or coming our way. As a body of believers, uncommon joy will be sparked when we hear from a servant of Jesus among all of us, where we stand as people set apart by God, as saints of His, and we offer to one another in an ongoing, spoken and unspoken life reality, the grace and peace of God, which surpasses understanding and guards our hearts and minds forever in Christ Jesus. Second thing that I gain, this I think is as far as I will get. There's uncommon joy in an unwavering trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. I see this in verses three through six. Just there's this uncommon joy that happens among us because we trust Jesus, you're enough, but we also trust Jesus, you will satisfy, you will bring your heart to us. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you. That's such an important verse. In my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, and I've so memorized the word confident, I am confident of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is an amen. I mean, I'm just sustained by that. I'm just living and going, God, I am so confident of this. There's a couple of things that I think are important, and I haven't sorted out how to preach them, so I'll just kind of talk right now for a minute. Um, I think it's super important that he says in verse 4, I am praying for all of you, because is that the way we work? I'm, I'm praying for every single one of you. In other words, Paul's writing from, from Rome and saying, I don't look back at some of you and think I kind of like them, but I'm going to leave them out of this prayer. That's kind of our church way, you know. We're going we're gonna to love them. 
And Paul's looking and going, I am praying the grace and peace, the confidence and the power, the trust and the sufficiency of the living God. I mean, don't, wouldn't you guess that there are some people in Philippi that got on his nerves? And he's going, here's what I'm praying for every single one of you. And if you drop down and give or take verses 8, 7 or 8, he says, not only am I praying for you, but I'm praying for you with the affection of Christ Jesus as the central point of my prayer. That's a lot of affection. Ponder that for a moment. I'm praying for all of you and I'm always praying with joy because I think about you and I remember you. I don't know if that's my feeling about every one of you in this room. Every time I remember you, there's just joy. That's almost like the heart of Jesus. Somebody in our Bible study group said this morning, Jesus had this gift of forgiving and forgetfulness. Just look and say, I know what God wants for you. I know who you are. I know he is sufficient. And I love this prayer. And I pray for you, every single one of you. And it's the affection of Jesus Christ. As I started to ponder that this morning as I was preparing to walk in this room, I thought the affection of Jesus Christ is like an old song I used to sing in the 80s and early 90s. Like, he came from heaven to earth to show us the way. That's the affection of Jesus From the earth to the cross, my death to repay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Some of you didn't sing choruses, and I'm sorry for you, but I did in the 80s, and that was just, this is affection. This is a God in Christ who left perfection to move in with us and come and pitch a tent, as John 1 says, and I am praying for you with that affection. Can you say that about the people that are sitting in this room with you? Because this is a church of uncommon joy, if yes. Can we look around this room and just start to say, I'm praying for all of you. I remember what God has done. He has been faithful. I am confident of what he will do. And I have for you the affection of Jesus Christ. Wow. That would foster uncommon joy and extraordinary passion. He tells us to take courage. He says, look, I want you to be confident I want you to be confident and inspired. I want you to take steps for the gospel. I want you to walk into hard places. I want you to believe who I am to be true. I want your confidence to not come in your self-ability. I want your confidence to come in the power of the Spirit of God. So Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Come and fill us with your power. I want to end with this. these thoughts. As a people of God, I believe what Paul is calling for from us is a people who fully believe that Jesus is our sufficiency and Jesus is enough. And so he's, he's just passionate about that. And he's coming to them saying, there's, there's what I want you to understand is that I want you to engage in experience that is not possible unless you walk with Jesus. And I am confident, therefore, in the presence and the power of Jesus. Isn't that a great description of the church? I want you to walk in a manner that reflects and emboldens the power and the glory of Christ. Because here's where I'm confident, Paul would say, and here's where I'm confident as your pastor. I am confident in the power and the presence of Jesus. I have very little confidence in me, and I have very little confidence in you. It's not personal. But I have great confidence in the person of Christ. And it's beautiful. I, I think of, uh, I think of this, um, I think of the account of Peter where he was filled with, 
um, filled with desire to love and honor God. And so, you know, the story where he walked on water, I think of this and there's this confidence that I long to have. I want to be a people who are a people who immediately say, let's get out of this boat. Let's be risky. Let's be confident in Christ. And so we step out and we find ourselves walking on water. And at any point, this is where our confidence is. God, I have been in the midst of who you are. You have sustained me. I am not going to stand with these 11. I'm out of this boat. And he's walking on water. And you know the story if you've read the scripture. And not only does he walk on water, but then he begins to look at the waves and the wind. And it kind of, um, it kind of propels him to begin to sink. And his confidence is not sustained at that moment, except that Jesus reaches in the water and pulls him up. When did you reach a point? Levi Lesko asked me this, and he asked our group of college students this. When did you reach the point that you realized your first win wasn't enough? This is a pretty big question, so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll wrestle with this for a week or two, or three, or the rest of your life. When did you reach the point first that you realized that your internal strength would not carry you forward for the sake of the kingdom of Christ? I have a series of questions, so I don't want to get too far from my notes. I wrote this question. When did I discover that my steps are insufficient? Here's coming up on the screen. There is nothing powerful or lasting that is done in our own strength. I mean, we're like, we're like Samson walking around with a buzz cut. (laughs) To follow Jesus is to know your insufficiency. To partner with the people around you for the sake of the gospel is to walk in the strength of his might. You and I look around and we see the gates of hell. We see powers and principalities. We see the field, it's white under harvest. We see the nations and we see opportunities. We see the wind that rages against us that follow Jesus. And here's what you and I must see in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of those powerful, scriptural, realistic things coming at us. We must see Jesus. And we must look at Him and say, I don't have the strength to be or do what you want to have done on this earth But praise be to God in Christ that I am confident of this, that who has begun a work in the heart of the Mandarin family will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for all of us with abounding prayer that God will move in our hearts. I just thought of David when he walked into a field of battle and what he saw was what no one else saw. He saw God and he picked up a rock. Picked up five, actually. I see Joshua who saw a group and said, let's walk around a wall. He didn't see the wall. He saw God and he said, if we circle this about seven times, God will prevail. I am confident in God. When David walked out on the field and all of them were cowering, much like many of us in this room, there were a few who said, I don't see the giant. I actually got to go in a preschool womb and measure myself against Goliath. I was far shorter. He just walked on the field and said, I don't see the giant. Here's what he said. Is there not a cause and is there not a great God? And he took off. 
Elijah built an altar and neither saw the 800 or the small letter G gods in the equation. He saw the living God in his worship. There were three friends who were surrounded by multitudes who compromised. That's where we live today. There were three who saw God and God prevailed. And here's what I see happening in this, whether it be David, Elijah, Joshua, the three, they saw this with passion. They saw the face of Christ. Their confidence was bolstered in him they moved and it affect many and i pray across this room for many of us who will come to this reckoning in our hearts when did you first realize that your strength was insufficient i wrote this sentence and then i will point out three things he prayed and share with you them next time i'm here when your first steps fail Rejoice. Peter, there is a strength beyond yourself to be gained, and it is found in the all-sufficient power of Christ. In our attempts to live for Jesus, we are launched into things that are far beyond our ability. It was impossible It was uncommon joy in the midst of impossible odds, but Christ that moved in the heart of launching the church at Philippi. It will be, it will be uncommon joy in Mandarin, Florida against odds that are prevailing right now of a godless society if we will walk out as a people who were filled with the presence and, and, and reconciled in the power of the living God against all odds but Jesus, great things can happen. We're just saying, God, we know we're insufficient, but you're enough. We know we don't have what it takes, but you're enough. We know that we can't move forward, but you're enough. And here's where he prayed, and I want to share this in my next sermon. He prayed for three things. This is my prayer, that your love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight so you could discern what is best. You could be pure pure and blameless to the day of Christ. He prayed for biblical, rich, robust fellowship. He prayed for a complete lack of hypocrisy among the believers. I want you to be pure and blameless. No hypocrisy among you. And here's what I'm looking for. I'm praying for this. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. I've got to work it through in my head. Do you see that? I want you to have the external works of the internal Jesus flooding this earth. He's not not wrestling with their inside life in verse 11. He's wrestling with an exterior reality of an interior, interior beauty of Jesus. He's saying, I want this earth to be flooded with the presence of Christ. So church, Believe this, Jesus is enough and your sufficiency is in him and you will see the confidence of God move through you. Let's do it. It's for Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory that we gather and we sing. God, I just want to tell you that from the moment I saw that we would be singing this song, I was grateful. I love what we're about to sing and I love the truth of who you are. And so, God, as we close our service in worship, I pray that you would ripen us in your truth, that you would enrich us in our insufficiency, that you would deepen us in confidence in you, our God, that you would draw us to prevailing love for your word, that your spirit would invade that, 
that God, hypocrisy would fall away and mass would be undone. And that Jesus, you would be glorified. And so, Father, we just have the privilege during this song to wrestle with you. I pray that we would be the worshipers of the God of Jacob. So for the next few minutes, we tend to end our services just with a song, with an open altar. In the Old and New Testament days, the altar was just a place to come and wrestle with God. And very often in the Old Testament, they would build a memorial there saying, I, I can't be the same. I love Scripture over and over saying, the God of Jacob. My prayer this morning would be that, that this church not walk the same. Because Jesus is enough and His grace is sufficient. And so our altar is open if you would like to come and kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. Pastors gather here at the front. We're willing and joyous to pray with you, to share with you what it means to know Jesus. So would you join with me in singing a song of worship and adoration? Some of you, if God's calling, would you join me in this altar just to pray? Can this just be a holy moment as we move with the spirit of the living God? Would you stand with me? Would you worship with me? If you need to come, come now.